Hi everyone, this week I attended the Global Conference for Media Freedom here in London. Hundreds of journalists from around the world were here. I was part of a panel discussing transforming media development. The panel was moderated by Julie Possetti, a senior research fellow at University of Oxford. I hope you find our conversation interesting and informative. If you want to reach out to me after listening to the podcast, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Dickens Olewe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to London. Important event by any measure for its achievement in bringing so many foreign ministers and those responsible for media development together at a really critical time for journalism internationally. A time when journalists are being brutally murdered with impunity, even in the embassies of Western allies. A time when journalists are being labelled enemies of the state, even by Western leaders. A time when newsrooms are being raided in leak investigations and confidential journalistic communications are being inappropriately accessed by law enforcement agents, even in Western democracies. A time when female journalists are being driven from the profession by the scourge of gendered online harassment. A time when disinformation, sometimes orchestrated by state actors and political interests, threatens to swamp credible, independent journalism with serious implications for liberal democracies. And a time when digital transformation and platform power are delivering both enormous business model challenges and unprecedented opportunities for journalism innovation. I'm Julie Pizzetti, and I'm Senior Research Fellow with the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. I've been a journalist for 30 years this year, and I study journalism sustainability in the context of media freedom challenges. You'll find copies of my latest study for the Reuters Institute, I've got a version here, outside the plenary hall. It's focused on three Global South newsrooms on the front line of the disinformation struggle. They're innovatively fighting back, and that's, I think, an important point to highlight. Among them is Maria Ressa's Rappler, and she's with us today. I encourage you to read it and to draw inspiration from the creative, determined, mission-driven journalists who run those newsrooms in the Philippines, in South Africa and in India. I think they can teach us a thing or two about perseverance, adaptability and survival in the face of sometimes unrelenting attacks. But we're here this morning to discuss transforming media development, which is essential in the context of those serious challenges I outlined a moment ago, and important too in an era of digital disruption, which has led to the reconceptualization of media freedom. It's not just about a right available to journalists, to professional journalists, to support their practice. It's also a right essential to audiences in terms of their ability to access reliable information and independent journalism, both on and offline. And this implies a very important role for society-wide digital media and information literacy programs in development projects. Because independent news media are a vital and vibrant part of fostering and preserving democracy internationally. And facilitating media freedom and media development, which are intersecting and overlapping goals, is therefore a critical component of accountable and transparent governance. For independent media to flourish, it's essential that journalists and other public information producers are free and safe to report and publish without fear of reprisal, attack or murder with impunity. 
but they also require legal and normative environments that support access to information and the publication of robust public interest journalism and the functions of a critical press, both online and offline again. To function as accountability monitors or watchdogs, independent news organisations must be viable and sustainable. They must be supported by nimble, multifaceted business models that enable robust and, and enterprising journalism that can serve communities at national and local levels. In many countries, and it's not just in the global south as I mentioned, the news media are facing these unprecedented levels of threat and convergent crises. And this both increases the need for investment in media freedom and media development and the risks associated with intervening but intervention is essential. It's not enough to just defend media freedom. We must proactively support it. And this requires serious investment in will, in advocacy, and in real money. Importantly, as I mentioned, it also requires the pursuit of media freedom principles and standards in tandem with media development work. Traditionally, media development has involved the training of journalists to better equip them with skills and education to fulfil their roles in democratic contexts. But as UNESCO suggests in its media freedom, or rather media development indicators, media development programs cannot be effective or sustainable in the absence of media freedom. And media freedom principles and legal frameworks pursued in isolation from media development will not lead to viable, sustainable, independent news media, which are an essential expression of media freedom. Increasingly, media development programs must also be responsive to issues like journalism safety risks and digital security threats, viral hate speech, gendered online harassment and disinformation, and so on. This work is costly and complex, and it requires genuine commitment, concrete action, and serious collaborative investment. Expectations are very high for this event we've gathered for, but commitments require resources. So let's see if this Global Media Freedom Conference can deliver in a way that stands up to the sort of independent media scrutiny that we're here to defend. And now I'm going to introduce the first part of this multifaceted panel discussion on transforming media development. We have Gwen Lister, who's the founding editor of The Namibian and executive chair of The Namibian Media Trust. Mira Milosevic, who's the director of the Brussels-based Global Forum for Media Development. And Thomas Hughes, the executive director of Article 19. Dickens Olewe is a Kenyan journalist who's currently working at the BBC. Gwen, I'm going to start with you. I joked earlier with you that I've sometimes heard you referred to as the mother of World Press Freedom Day, which I know is a title you're not necessarily comfortable with. But can you tell us um, from your vast experience, which um, began more than 30 years ago, but 30 years ago next year, I think, you were integral in the establishment of World Press Freedom Day. How have things changed? What sort of challenges are you now confronting that are different to what you dealt with 30 years ago? Um, if one talks back to the adoption of the Vintuk Declaration, which was in 1991, um, the declaration provided for a free or requested a free, independent and pluralistic media for Africa. And I think what it did do was lead to a wider acceptance 
of the need for independent journalism in Africa, emerging as it was then from the era of apartheid and obviously authoritarian governments on the continent. The challenges for media back then were mainly political, especially for emerging independent media. It was mainly dealing with draconian governments. But there were also very specific economic challenges. Um, and those applied especially to legacy media, print in particular, um, which was emerging on the continent at the time. What was notable, I think, back then compared to when we look at media now, is that there was groundswell people's support for the role of this independent media. And again today, when we're dealing with the issue of legacy media and declining audiences, I think that's something we need to keep in mind. Mm. There were also very key sustainability challenges back then for the media, most of whom uh, received some kind of donor funding and could not manage to make the transition from donor funding to, to sustainability. So again, there are probably um, comparisons between then and now which are still relevant today. And many of those brave publications did not survive. Um, but what they did do was, I think they were very close to the people and they helped to entrench press freedom and free speech on the continent. 30 years later, yes, the landscape is very different. There are new challenges, but there are some old ones too. Um, I think that it's important we need to explore uh, what, we, what can be done, especially if we want independent media to survive. One of the problems we had then, and we still have today, for example, was to try and transform the role of um, state broadcasters into the role of public yes. broadcasters, and that's something we, we haven't got right yet. Um, I think it's also true to say that uh, the media or the survival of good journalism in, in Africa is going to need some help. But I think it's important to say right from the outset that we want and we need such help, but it has to be on our terms. I think that's very important. Perhaps if I have an extra few minutes, uh, Julie, just to say journalism is still fiercely under attack. Um, in Africa. And in the words of one of the South African journalists, I thought it was quite poignant, said recently, we are abused and our jobs are disappearing. And I think that is obviously making the world worse off. So it's in crisis as it is in the rest of the world in, in Africa. Um, it's at risk. And I think there are still those journalists um, on our continent who are committed to the spirit of the Vindic Declaration and independent, good, professional journalism, but they are increasingly at risk, risk and, and many of them are uh, being neutralised. Okay, I think we'll come to Mira now. We'll come okay. back to you, um, Gwen, a little later. So, Mira, how, how is this changing shape um, of media markets, emerging media markets and, and fragile uh, states, for example, how are things from your perspective as a, a person who directs an organisation that coordinates media development efforts, particularly in reference to the sustainability and viability um, of independent journalism and how that intersects with media freedom? 
Um, thank you, Julie. Uh, Gwen just mentioned that there are some uh, similar challenges as the ones we had 30 years ago when media development as a sector was only starting. But uh, as all our colleagues, uh, we have members in more than 70, 70 countries know, uh, the challenges uh, are uh, different. Uh, there are more challenges. And uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find sustainable models for quality journalism. So we are seeing three seismic shifts. Uh, of course, you know about the business model, but when, when we're talking about the development response, what is the gap, uh, what is the need that we are addressing? We have an estimate that uh, news publishers around the world have lost over the last 10 years around $28 billion annually uh, from advertising that has moved to digital. At the same time, digital is bringing on a global scale only around $10 billion to the most developed countries. So this, uh, uh, this income is particularly critical in, uh, in so-called emerging uh, low and middle income countries because we estimate that around $3 billion is lost for local media. And so this, uh, this business model uh, that supported local news reporting yeah. is no longer there. Particularly affected are also investigative journalism and uh, uh, foreign reporting. So that's uh, the business model that we are seeing as a, as a failing and uh, it's being addressed uh, in some of the countries by say state subsidies, by developing public service media where the subsidies are uh, transparent and accountable, but at the same time there are a lot of countries where we are seeing a rise of authoritarian regimes uh, who support media that create uh, alternative facts and also use Alternative this, facts. Yes. <laughs> and use this support to, to pressure media and there is a lot being written uh, on media capture and a lot that's going to be said in this, uh, in this conference uh, today and uh, tomorrow. Uh, there is also, of course, a dramatic change in the way uh, people get and distribute information. And when we talk about development perspective, we have to also take into uh, consideration that the development uh, picture of the world has dramatically changed over the last 30 years and that the uh, uh, dichotomy and the paradigm of a developed versus developing world is, uh, is no longer there and that the most of uh, uh, people uh, live uh, somewhere in between in the low and uh, middle income countries. So these are all the, uh, the issues that we are seeing as, uh, as challenges. However, while uh, the uh, wealth distribution has moved and a lot of countries are reaching the middle income and even high income countries, we are seeing that uh, inequalities within societies uh, are uh, becoming bigger and that these inequalities are also reflected in, in the news consumption. And there was a, a recent report from the Reuters yes. Institute that uh, looked uh, uh, even at the UK mm. and, uh, and concluded that, that this problem of inequality in news consumption is uh, actually something that needs to be addressed in the same way that we need to address polarization and uh, disinformation. Yeah. So um, those are um, some of the challenges that, uh, that we are facing when we are thinking about how to approach uh, uh, sustainability of media. There is uh, uh, no one sustainable model. It's becoming a mixture of uh, business, advertising, uh, subsidies, and uh, uh, philanthropy and official development assistance is becoming crucial for some of the journalism and media organizations around the world, and we can talk about that a bit later. Great. So, yes, very complex problems with multifaceted solutions required. So if I can come to you next, um, Dickens, from your perspective, um, 
in Eastern Africa in particular, I mean, you have expertise around the digital uh, risks in particular and digital opportunities, and I referenced some of those challenges just a moment ago, but can you talk to us about how you're seeing um, digital technologies and transformations impacting on freedom of expression? Well, uh, thank you. Um, I think the situation at the moment uh, in, in East Africa is like really mixed. Uh, you know, on the positive side, you find that the voices that have been for years uh, ignored, you know, talking about women, talking about young people, are now finding their, you know, to express themselves, to express their issues on social platforms, which are pretty much, you know, very popular across the region. Mm. Uh, the other thing as well in terms of, uh, uh, you know, freedom of expression is find that um, especially in social platforms, which are often less sanitized, you find communities are, um, you know, people for, for the, you know, there's a formation of communities there, and these communities, uh, you find that, um, you know, they take on the, uh, the established media, which sometimes, when you look at the region, the, uh, the established media is, sometimes you can find that people don't necessarily, uh, you know, find it hard to distinguish whether they're actually independent or part of the government. Yeah. So you find that these, there are these spaces that have been created where they're actually pushing you know, the agenda and trying to create these parallel uh, narratives to come out. And the other thing that I think that's also interesting you know, in fact, as far as the media is concerned is that uh, social platforms especially have created this uh, amazing uh, platform where the media can constantly uh, measure their impact and you know get like a, it's almost like a feedback loop of tr just trying to see whether they are actually reflecting uh, the, some of the concerns that uh, you know the people uh, have but then there's also the negative part of it which is uh, for example in my country where adoption rate uh, when it comes to um, you know di digital platforms uh, is very very high but then that comes obviously with uh, you know the challenges of uh, misinformation and dis disinformation and the uh, other negative parts, uh, effects that comes out of that. Um, the other thing as well is that now you find that governments across the region and pretty much in Africa have now this new law, you know, the cyber, cyber crime law, mm. which essentially is just meant to target uh, people who often don't, you know, quote unquote, toe the line. There's so, also the rise of fake news legislation internationally. Exactly, yeah. There's a rise of fake news leg legislation. For example, uh, in Uganda, there's a social media tax, yeah. uh, which the, when uh, that uh, came into place, the president uh, basically said that the reason why uh, this law uh, is being passed is to... Um, you know, basically deal with gossip. Yeah. So Ugandans right now, if they want to use uh, social media platforms, have to pay, uh, I think it's 4p uh, every day. So the impact of that is that you find many people have obviously uh, dropped off, so they are not as engaged. So those communities that I was talking about, those engagements that people are having uh, on social media uh, have been disrupted. There's this unattended consequences of attempts to solve genuine problems, but in a way that can actually curtail uh, media freedom and citizens' active participation. Uh, ex exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just the other thing as well that I, just, I, thought, I thought was really interesting, though, a few weeks ago there was a, a blogger who was arrested and one of the news, newspapers had a really incredible story of how after the arrest, um, you know, he was forced to, you know, give up his passwords mm. and, you know, they had access. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that and in terms of media freedom uh, in Kenya, for example, is that you find that uh, because of, uh, you know, most media organizations still depend on government advertising and therefore they self-censor to make sure that... Um, 
you know, they, 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 they're in good books with the government. So what has happened is that usually whenever people, uh, you know, so that people want to leak documents, they've usually used um, bloggers, um, you know, to leak documents mm -hmm. on social media. Now you can imagine the impact of that when, uh, you know, the authorities have uh, yes. access to these passwords. and you know, the consequences that come out of uh, access to that information. So there's issues around the sorts of protections that we rely on as professional journalists to secure our communications being extended to other public interest um, publishers, if you like, exactly. in your context. Mm -hmm. Okay, Thomas um, Hughes uh, from Article 19. Um, how do these factors fit in, I suppose, to the broader trends around freedom of expression and the challenges um, around the sorts of curtailments that we've been discussing so far? And, and I suppose if you can particularly link that, given um, our focus to the challenges facing media development agencies and, and donors around um, you know, the UN sustainability goals. Sure, and, and before I get to that, thank yes. you for the question. I just want to say that you, you spoke at the start about expectations and expectations for this conference. Mm. Uh, and I want to make a very clear opening remark uh, that yesterday uh, a group of 33 uh, press freedom and media development organizations met uh, and developed uh, a statement and a call to action for governments. Uh, and I think this conference will really stand on the fact, or fall, mm -hmm. on the fact as to whether governments adhere to the types of things that civil society are calling for. And our call is very simple. It's got three very easily implementable parts. It's to release all imprisoned journalists, to stop killing, attacking, and denigrating journalists, and to investigate and prosecute all murders for journalists. And I think any government who comes to this conference can certainly live up to those steps. If you're here, then we would ask you to not only speak the speak, but walk the talk, as it were. Um, to answer your question. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I think obviously there's a very clear intersection and link between freedom of expression and press freedom more widely uh, and uh, the sustainable development goals and the eradication of poverty uh, and, uh, uh, and also open societies. Uh, and where we see that the most marginalized and vulnerable groups uh, don't have access to proper representation or don't have voice, uh, that obviously promotes uh, and fosters often inept or even corrupt forms of governance and service delivery. Um, so I think there's really kind of three intersecting points that we should, yeah. we should pay particular attention to. Uh, the first is obviously uh, shrinking civic space. I don't think that needs much introduction here, but we do see around the world increasing pressure, particularly on civil society actors. Uh, we see governments often targeting dissenting voices. We see them uh, closing down or impeding civic action, particularly around protest. Uh, and we see the increasing stigmatization of particular individuals and journalists in this case as well. Uh, and, and that obviously pushes directly back against uh, freedom of expression, but also what we want to achieve through the sustainable development goals. Um, the second one would be pressure on independent media and more broadly intermediaries, if I can use that term. Yeah. Um, I think so this your is platforms, your service providers and so on. Yeah. Well, yes, but also individuals who are, yeah. who are, who are uh, providing access to information via some of those platforms. Uh, and some of these points have been mentioned already actually by Mira, but they'll be mentioned, I think, many times during the course of this conference. Uh, and they include things like concentration of ownership, which we see in yeah. many countries around the world, including the UK. The decline of pluralism. Yeah. De Exactly. Um, we see increasing state control over public advertising and as the traditional advertising models dissipate, 
public advertising becomes more and more crucial and therefore governments exert more pressure through public advertising uh, and, and we see more issues around misinformation and disinformation. I'm going to avoid the term fake news but misinformation, disinformation online. Um, and the last very important one, the third point, is failures in accountability and transparency mechanisms broadly around the world. Uh, we see the rise and increase of right to information legislation around the world and increasing access to data and the provision of data which is great and very, very welcome. Um, but at the same time, many of the more vulnerable and targeted, mm. uh, marginalized communities around the world find it hard to access that data, to use it, to interpret it, uh, and to ensure that it's put into those accountability loops to ensure that mm. the power holders are, are held to account. So again, there's much more work that needs to be done there as well. And Sustainable Development Goal 16 um, also references specifically, doesn't it, in the UN context, the right to access information being critical. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so this is kind of underpinning what we're talking about here. Just before I move on to um, involving others again in this conversation, one thing I'd be interested to hear from you from, Thomas, is we're talking largely about media development um, and global media freedom in the context of what's required in the, the global south. How important is it for states in the developed West, liberal democracies, to actually ensure that they are leading by example when it comes to media freedom and freedom of expression? Um, well, uh, I instinctively don't like the idea of leading by example, but I do think that around the world we see legislation being used in a copycat banner, and particularly uh, in, in the United States and in the European Union, legislation and or directives that are passed do tend to get replicated. But you can apply that in a regional context as well, where dominant countries tend to lead, not always the case, and that gets replicated as well. So I think all countries in the world, regardless of where they are ge geographically, need to pay particular attention to the implications internationally of the types of legislation that they pass, and to give really serious consideration, particularly in the digital context, of what those, le what those pieces of legislation look like and what they yeah. mean for individual expression. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Um, Gwen, can I come back to you? Um, what about the role of international development donors? We have many of them gathered here. What do you think they could most meaningfully do in Southern Africa at the moment? What are the most urgent challenges that need addressing? Well, I think, as I mentioned early, uh, uh, Julie, they have played a very important uh, part in, in the past, and they will again in the present and the future in regard to sustaining good media. Um, but the thing is, I think it needs to be emphasized that we really do need to listen to the voices on the ground, especially in the global south, whether it's southern, southern Africa or, or elsewhere, and look at the ways and means in which they can make sustainability a reality, but not losing sight of the importance of independent professional journalism lying at the heart of anything and everything we want to achieve. Yeah. Um, I've got some ideas around that, obviously, as I come from a background of that uh, assistance from donors back in the in the 80s and setting up a trust a newspaper as a non-profit trust. And I think they need to look very specifically at tried, true, and test, tried, true, and tested um, uh, models out there to support them, uh, because I think a lot in the in the, in the past there were a lot of commercial advantages that certain unscrupulous elements uh, took from creating so-called independent media. So I think the trust model is a good and accountable and transparent one. It's not a silver bullet mm. to su uh, survive the sustainability challenge, but I think it holds a lot more potential. And if I may, Julie, I think part of that challenge is obviously 
Maybe the biggest aspect of sustainability is really is really quality journalism, and I think it's 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 got to be. Well, it has to be helped that journalisms, the journalists themselves, must embrace the <clears throat> the digital challenge, um, and and in order to do that, they must innovate and they must help to create and strengthen independent media and radio on the ground in in Africa, in particular, to reach those communities where the internet has not yet penetrated. And again, the Reuters report yes. shows us the huge gap between yeah. penetration in, in, yeah. in the US and the Americas and Europe and, and Africa and the global south where it's much, much lower. So I think that's a challenge. And if I may, really there's a huge need for us not to forget and to go back to journalism quality and to go back to basics. Yeah. You know, today an old school journalist myself hears a lot about the new journalism, the immersive journalism and all kinds of other journalism they're teaching you about. But I think what we really need to do, we cannot in, uh, um, develop investigative depth that is going to gain credibility among audiences when many, many young journalists lack the fundamental understanding of why their role is so important in society yeah. and how it contributes to the larger cause of press freedom and democracy. Okay. So I think that's ab absolutely critical and media literacy is vitally important as well. Okay, great. Mira, from, from your overarching perspective, what are you seeing working? Where can we see evidence of impact when it comes to investment in media development programs specifically linked to media freedom? Well, as, uh, uh, as Gwen has mentioned, uh, for some of the uh, outlets and uh, for different forms and shapes of journalist organizations, this assistance actually acts as a lifeline. Mm. And uh, we know that at the moment, uh, official development assistance in journalism and media is um, anywhere between 350 billion to uh, 400 billion per year. And uh, that is uh, invested in different parts of the world in different ways shapes and forms and even though it doesn't seem like a, uh, like a large amount compared to that gap that I described previously it's uh, it's really important and uh, not only the amount of money is important but the way this money is implemented distributed and reaches outlets that have all those needs including addressing security concerns um, so uh, you mentioned SDGs uh, and then the, how do we see what's working and what's not. Um, at the moment, uh, uh, we have a high-level political forum in New York, where SDG 16, Sustainable Development Goal 16, is reported for the first time. And we've been looking into correlations between uh, access to information, media sustainability, democracy indicators, but also development targets and indicators. And there is high correlation, and data shows it really clearly, there is high correlation between media sustainability, access to information for local communities and, for instance, corruption. Mm. High correlation with election participation. Uh, high correlation with all the other democratic processes in which uh, the citizens participate. So it's very important for us that governance assistance to the field uh, of democracy, of development, mm. recognizes this important role of media and journalism and integrates media and journalism in a meaningful way uh, in, in this assistance. Uh, just to go back why the structure and how uh, this assistance is implemented is important. At the moment, assistance to media and journalism is highly fragmented. 
Um, it's um, coordinated in very few places. Uh, lessons learned are not funded. 70% uh, of our members receive funding that's short cycle of funding. Uh, and uh, very few receive something that we would call capacity building and organi organizational support to survive throughout this period. And so the new challenge is that we don't support anymore just a, a non-profit organization and non-profit news. Now all kinds of journalist yeah. organizations are in Professional need. journalism. Yes, professional well. journalism. Yeah. And they are different uh, types of organizations. And we need to recognize that, that they're maybe not the most skillful in fundraising, but their need is, is very, very big at the moment. Great. Thanks, Mira. Um, Dickens, I'll come to you next. From the issues you've highlighted around um, digital transformation, mm. how effective are current interventions in addressing that and what needs to be done to improve it? Um, I mean, just to, um, I, th I think Gwen nailed it. I think uh, the crisis we have at the moment, yes, there is a, we need to talk about the challenges in terms of uh, the regulations that are being uh, passed in different uh, countries that are anti-media. Uh, uh, there's also obviously the question about, uh, you know, the business models, but equally as important, if not the most important thing, is trust. Mm. Uh, there was a uh, a survey that was published by Afrobarometer uh, just a few a few months ago, and what it was quite shocking actually that increasingly Africans are um, supportive of the government to control or to. Uh, to be in charge of, uh, if not to review, uh, what is broadcast and printed in newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I, my, my question is that, I mean, you, from the outside, you'll probably start anal analyzing that and saying that the governments are becoming repressive. But I think for me, the most important question is, what has the media done to the point where the public now feels that the government can just literally, basically they're inviting the government to the newsroom. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really, really key thing. Um, I think in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, support from uh, uh, development uh, organizations, I think one of the key things, having been uh, a benefit of some of the trainings, uh, for example, yes. I think one of the things that I can look back to is I, I remember, you know, going for a week, two-week training, and then back in the newsroom, and then you have literally zero support. Uh, you're trying to, you're try, you know, you want to... embed to what you've exactly. learned, yeah. So I think what... Um, media, uh, international media organizations would probably do is that have uh, long-term relationships. Yes. I like, I've seen some of the uh, media organizations, uh, some in, uh, organizations are now working with universities. I think that's a very important thing. Journalism education exactly. is part of the mix. Yeah. And literally embedding um, you know, uh, professionals and, and trainers uh, in newsroom. I think that's the sort of uh, long-term investment that brings a change. Um, and and in, in terms of uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, like for example, FOIA laws. Like in my country, in Kenya, there is a freedom of information law. Mm. But I've not seen any media organization actually go out there to test it. Sure. So I think there's some knowledge transfer uh, that can definitely help. The and case. support to actually access some of the laws to ensure that they are being exactly. enacted. Okay, Thomas, if I can come to you. Um, thinking about the issue of sustainability and the broader challenges of freedom of expression with the sort of wider interventions that we're seeing in that space. Can you talk to us about what you think is essentially required now? So with donors 
I've just come back from Ethiopia where I'm doing a project in connection with DFID. Um, and there are so many challenges, so many needs. Um, but from a, from a global perspective, what's your take on this? Um, well, I'm going to highlight some of the points I think that have been made already. Um, I, I think the key issue here is that although Mira pointed out that uh, increasingly different types of actors, non-traditional media actors are producing journalistic content and, and need to be supported uh, in that sense, uh, still the vast majority of media actors are commercial entities yes. uh, and that makes media development a very different looking sector than other sectors. Um, even where we have in some countries public service media, those models are also now under intense pressure. Uh, Genuinely public service media as distinct from state broadcasting. As distinct from yeah. state broadcasting exactly. Um, so new models do need to be found and I think there are kind of four key areas that governments who are putting resources into this need to think about and look at. Uh, the, the first one obviously I would say is, is regulation. Uh, I've mentioned public advertising earlier. I think there needs to be more regulation around public advertising but more broadly support to what converged regulation looks like and support to actors who are responsible for regulation of the media sector per se and self-regulation where self-regulation applies. Um, I think the financial foundation Foundations is a point that has been, been mentioned a few times. So obviously access, continued access to advertising markets, looking for opportunities to access digital advertising markets from the global north and the global south, but also different types of income generation through microfinancing and non-commercial models and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of ideas out there as well. Uh, I think we can't move away from the very important area around resilience of alliances and networks. So the media has to work together, has to push for these things and fight for these things mm -hmm. from a national context to national stakeholders and national collaboratively government. exactly collaboratively um, and the last one I think is, is the point Dickens you were also making which is that we need to think uh, outside of the box if I can use that term around uh, low-cost production models uh, and looking at how to uh, generate high-quality content that can be replicated easily and quickly but maybe not with the enormous price tag that has traditionally been put against it yeah some really big challenges there we have time for one maybe two questions do we have uh, microphones in the room um, I can see a hand up the back there. I'm just going to grab something from the podium and a hand here. <laughs> Thank you so much. Khalid Ibrahim from the Gov Center for Human Rights. I think for all governments who are attending this uh, meeting, the starting point is what Thomas mentioned, the joint statement by civil society organizations, 30 plus, no killing, no more violence against journalists, and also to release all those people uh, independent journalists who are in prison. Now, uh, uh, Dickens talked about taking passwords from arrested journalists, or one journalist he mentioned. Uh, the popular practice in the MENA region is to confiscate all the electronic equipment. It happened in the arrest of Ahmed Mansour in Emirat, the arrest of Nabir Rajab in Bahrain, the arrest of Lujani Al-Hadlul in Saudi Arabia and others. Now, for me, the chronic problem that we have in MENA, the first generation of independent journalists disappeared. Either they are in prison, facing a trial, or serving a travel ban, or just let the country. Now my question is how we are going to create a new generation of independent journalists okay, great. in the MENA region. Thank you. And some of those the points you made, of course, extend be way beyond the MENA region. Gwen, I'm going to let you take that one. We've only got about a minute, so I'm afraid that's it for questions. We will have more questions at the second part. Uh, I think it's absolutely critical uh, what you're saying, and this is why I made the point about the emphasis of getting back to basics. Um, 
obviously one finds nowadays, especially within economically struggling societies such as our own countries back home, a lot of people are going into journalism who don't really have the passion for the craft. And so I think the training needs to be even more intensive in order to inculcate in them the need for independent journalists, the importance of independence independent journalism, absolutely critical as a pillar of democracy and to keep those societies alive. How one quite does that, I don't know, but we need more examples of these brave journalists and we'll see a lot of them in the next two days taking the platform here, Maria Ressa is one of them, to really have those kind of people as their role models and go forward um, and, and bring forth another generation who are unafraid as well as committed to the craft. And who are innovative and creative in responding to these Absolutely. challenges, which is important to note. That too. That's all we've got time for part one of this conversation. I'm going to thank these guests and welcome the next set of speakers up to the stage to continue um, this important uh, conversation around media development. Thank you very much, Gwen and Mira and Dickens and Thomas.